This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm your host. Today we are talking to Mala Nunn, who is a crime writer and a young adult fiction writer. How are you, Mala? You well? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'm really impressed with your young adult book, um, which is called When the Ground is Hard. What's the origin of that, that particular title, just quickly? Oh, it's from an African proverb that my mother used to um, use all the time, and it's about being in difficult circumstances. Right. So the full proverb is, when the ground is hard, the women dance. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you're in a difficult situation, it's the nature often of women to accept that situation and then try to change it. But the African part of it is that they do, I mean, the dancing is really just them changing. You try to change the ground that you're standing on. Right. And that was kind of what it was about. Because My main characters, you know, the two girls who don't quite fit in and they have to find a way to change their situation, their circumstances. And I couldn't have it be one of those changes that was, um, yeah, they get real tough. And, and then they, 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 you know, I couldn't do that that female strength thing that plays to physical, the physical nature of violence. I wanted to be them changing things in a way that felt real and sustainable and internal. Mm. So I, those are all rather big words, but it's <laughs> a complex thing. It's about two girls finding their place in the world, essentially. I'll just say it. I think that it's such a beautifully evocative um, African, if I can say that, image isn't it the the hard earth and dancing on the hard hard ground yeah that, that's sort of how i i felt about it as well and as i said because it was my one of my mother's favorite expressions so i have a an emotional tie to that yeah indeed so just a little bit of background before we get on to your book so you were born in south africa in swaziland correct yes it's now called eswatini Eswatini, but is it is it is it a territory of South Africa or is it a country in its own right? What's the story there? Uh, it was actually what's called a British protectorate. So what happened was well, that's, that's not at all um, that's not all paternalistic <laughs> and, and colonial, is it? <laughs> that's right. We were, in fact, the white man's burden. <laughs> right. You're of mixed race, as they say in in South Africa. Yes, yes. Um, which, mean, which means what exactly? I mean, there's so much loaded language around this now. So just what, what does that mean in, in the context of South Africa? Well, it, it's, it's almost a direct translation of the two words, mixed race. So mixed race, I mean, the background I come from is, was fairly common. I would call it very common working materials, which are white British soldiers and Zulu or Swazi or Tosa women. Mm-hmm. Because the British Army would come in with huge contingents of males, unattached males. But actually, say my the nun family on my part of my nun family, it wasn't soldiers. It was actually traders right. who came into Zululand very early, and they adopted native lifestyles. So my great grandfather actually had four wives. Um, something of a burden, I would imagine, from someone coming from England, right, to a warm climate, and suddenly you have four wives and a huge amount of cattle. But that's literally what we were. We were mixed race. So you could be mixed race by being black and Indian, um, 
a Norwegian whale hunter and somebody who was already mixed race, but you came out quite dark. It, it, it encapsulated a whole lot of people, but essentially the trick is that we're not what we, you would consider or what was then considered pure white. Right. Yeah. It ends up pure white was just a concept anyway, but, but then it seemed to have some scientific background to it, you know? Mm. I see, just as a sidebar, I see today in the news that Oxford has taken the decision to take down the Cecil Rhodes statue. We just had this exact conversation with my children. Right, okay. Because my father, who is the most kind and loving man, his name is Courtney Rhodes Nunn. And my kids were like, she got named after Cecil Rhodes. And I said, yeah, but when he, my father's 93. So when he was born, Cecil Rhodes was then what was then, I think, was he called the father or grandfather of Africa? Right. That was a title that was put on him. And and Ro- the- Rhodesia was named for him, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And uh, it definitely, well, he, he, I think he might have been self-named, actually. <laughs> many hotels course, operated. Um, he, was make, he was turning the, what do they say? Like he was, his, part of his mission was turning the map pink, wasn't he? All those, all those yes. pink countries that were basically British all over the... Absolutely. And he was rewarded mightily for, for that, including the country named after him. But, you know, the, a lot of the sort of semi-slavery things were set up by him. In, so I can understand why they're doing that. But I, my position is almost like I would like to see that statue kept up, but I would like to see a statue in opposition so we can have the conversation. So why, why was he considered the grandfather of Africa? Because he brought the British protectorates and he brought the British and the Queen and, and everyone in England huge amounts of money. Yes. I mean, he was rewarded for it. How, was he, how did he do that? By enslaving Africans and South Africans to work in mines. That's what he did, mm. that is um, slavery. And I'm also sure by you... taking over huge amounts of territory and right. selling the land. So I'd like to have the conversation. I would like to go, well, here's the statue, here's what it's for, and here's the representation of how he made his money. Because most people, mm. I want to have the conversation. As a historian, I'd rather have the fight, actually. Yeah. It's interesting, Stan Grant's... Um... Stan Grant's response a couple of years back when the, when the James Cook statue was first mm-hmm. under threat mm-hmm. and, um, and he said, don't tear the statue down. I don't have an issue with the statue being there. He's clearly an important part mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. history of modern Australia, but I'd, I'd rather you just change the plaque that states that he discovered Australia. Exactly. Let's, just, let's redefine the narrative slightly rather than try and, exactly. and, and, what, and what whitewash isn't the right term, but try and eliminate all those. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really up for, like, let's look at the complexity of it. Because to say, take this down, it's offensive, is, okay, the first question I would ask is, why is it offensive? Mm. Because taking it down doesn't give us the opportunity to have the conversation about why it's offensive. Right. So have that plaque say, actually, he didn't discover it. He was the first, because, I mean, the French, I think, had already been to WA quite a few times. And the Dutch. The and the Dutch. And, yeah, and, and not to mention the fact that somehow the Aboriginal people were here, but they didn't. I mean, this is a question that was asked with South African history too when you change the books is, is a lot of it's just wrong. So let's let's look at the way in which it's wrong. So, yeah, I'm up, I'm up for the conversation. I'm up for the change the plaque and it stands right. You yeah, know, yeah. Cook. His circumnavigation was an actual wonder of the world when he did it. And I'm here because he came here. So I feel a bit embarrassed railing against something that I am a direct beneficiary of. So I want to have the conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly complex. The, the, a lot of Confederate generals that are having their statues, mm. you know, challenged in, in the southern states of America, people go, oh, well, that was a part of history. But you look at when those statues were put up and a lot of those were put up as, as a response right. to the, the civil rights movement in the That's 60s. Right. They, weren't, they weren't there from 1900, they yeah. were there from 1960. They're not ancient artefacts at right. all. No, they're, they're, they're clearly a middle finger to, yeah. the, to, the, to the damn Yankees. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's complex. We could talk about this all day, but it's not really. Yeah, we could. We could. Let's talk about genre fiction because you're, I'm going to say chosen genre, which is a little bit, I could go a different way. I could say the genre that chose you, but that would be very kind of um, Anne Lamott, wouldn't it? Just sort of putting out there the whole, you know, yeah. you don't choose the book, the book choose. But is that true? Is, is crime fiction something that you kind of fell into or did you go one day, I'm going to be a crime writer? Oh, uh, so I, I'm a big fan of action, of crime fiction. Australians love their crime fiction. They especially love their true crime. Yeah, true crime, absolutely. And I know a couple of true crime authors and we often talk about how I couldn't do what they do because I would find it very sad because it's mm. true. I kind of enjoy making up elements of my story and pushing things in the direction that I want them to go. But uh, so I was already reading, I was reading a lot of crime at the time that I went to make a documentary with my mother in, in Swaziland. And I got married by traditional ceremony while I was there to my, my American, Jewish American husband. And we went on honeymoon and we were standing at the side of a river in Komati port, which is a place that borders uh, Mozambique and Swaziland and South Africa. And it was the most beautiful, you know, those, um, if you've been, you know, the, those beautiful African braided rivers you know, that have, I was just, just like heart bursting thing. And I was standing there looking out over this river and I thought, I just had an image of a man, a body of a man in the river. And I thought, oh, what's that about? So maybe the story really did choose me, but it was, it was actually then, it was actually a year later that I, that image came back to me and I thought, oh, he's a policeman. The man, the man in the river is a policeman. And that sort of was a, a genesis of it. So I guess in a way there's something about the landscape opened up a story for me that wasn't being opened up in my normal life. Well, you've actually very conveniently, and anyone listening will not believe me when I say that we didn't plan it this way, but we actually didn't because a question I had to ask you is this. Your crime fiction is very much set in Africa. Yes. In Africa, obviously, it's close to your heart. But then you've got all these other genres of crime fiction, Scandinavian fiction or Scandi Noir, as they call it in the film industry, Western crime fiction, hard-boiled New York, Mm -hmm. Chicago Mm -hmm. or LA, which has become a bit more de rigueur with people like um, Bukowski and and so forth. Right. You've got that sort of regional crime. um, Then you've got the African crime like yourself and Alexander McCall Smith. Then you've got Name of the Rose where they're taking it and putting it in a, in a kind uh, of medieval setting. In a, yeah, in a, yeah. Um, then you've got the British. And I'm talking, I guess I'm talking about TV as well as, uh, as literature, but, you know, your whole broad church and that sort of thing. And then you've got Carl Heisen writing about, you know, it's I all poly- polyester and... Yeah, yeah. Polyester <laughs> and pink and, flamingos. And, <laughs> right, pink flamingos. Exactly, pink flamingos and, and, and Ray-Bans. Are they all just random props for the same story being retold a different way? Not mean to oversimplify what you do, but or is, well, what role does, does a place play in something like what you write? 
it's, that's like asking what role does your childhood play in becoming an adult? It's everything. It's everything. Where you set is everything. So Scandinavian um, setting brings in huge amounts of things like weather and the, the sense of claustrophobia and the sense of the smallness of the communities. And the long you know, so, Yeah, that's right. So that actually really does. So the actual physical environment kind of plays into who the people are and how they interact with that environment. And then the crimes come into that. And also every society is set up in a slightly different way. So uh, Name of the Rose, for example, is one of my favourite books because it introduced me to this kind of era that I didn't know very much about. And it was, it was a fine crime picture, fiction book, but um, everything is so different. So LA in the 1950s, if you, if you read um, Walter Mosley, that is inevitably going to be about a city that's expanding very fast, returned veterans and how they fit into that society and what some of the problems that those veterans brought back with them uh, from the war. And also the fact that they were now black veterans a lot of black veterans, which before used to not be something that was very acknowledged. So the main character is a black veteran of World War II. It brings in all the racial prejudice that existed in LA, brings in the police and how they dealt with crimes. I mean, it's such a, it's just, crime fiction is just a feast of the place and the time and what was happening then. And you engage with that. And is it almost always the same story? Well, I mean, most crime fiction has murder, right? I didn't mean to be dismissive of putting it that way. but Oh, no, no, no. No, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I do know, I, I know people who don't read crime fiction because they actually find it strangely boring because your point, be, their point being, well, it is kind of like there's a crime and people solve it. But I always find that it gets solved in different ways. Um, and I think maybe I'm talking about some of the very best crime fiction authors at the top of their game, like any genre, bring you this unbelievable kind of setting and characters that you wouldn't normally meet in your daily life and an examination of the society that that crime takes place in. So mine is set in 1950s South Africa, and that was really all about the imposition of the racial segregation laws. And so, yes, a crime happens, but the solving of the crime is, is hampered by and made individual by the circumstances of that time and that place. So it's a very, it's a, literally a broad church. <laughs> it just takes in so many different places and, and, and um, you know, approaches to it. But like any genre, you know, the, the audience has an expectation about how that book is going to unfold. Yeah, I find, um, <laughs> I've often wondered why anyone would ever go to go away for a weekend in um, midsummer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, every time, <laughs> every, every time Jessica Tandy's character, no, no, what was her name? Um, not Jessica Tandy, um, Jessica no. from Murder, She Wrote. Yes, Murder, She Wrote. Every time she turns up in your hotel, you know, like, no, I'm sorry, we, we don't have any beds for you. You can, you can go back to wherever you're from because um, did, is, that a, is that a problem when people start putting crime stories in the same setting all the time? Does that start to really bend credibility yes. and, and, and the suspension of disbelief? If, if you talk to crime writers, set, they, will, they will point out, unless you, it's set in a massively big city, mm. and I know a friend of mine has said, uh, she said, third book, kill the, kill the local policeman. <laughs> I 
kill the school teacher? And then she goes, my thought becomes literally like, how many more people can I kill in this small Australian town? <laughs> and that does absolutely become a problem if it's set in the same, if you don't have your characters travelling out, for example, or it's not set in the big city, yes, you can, in fact, kill too many people in a small place. I mean, the Midsummer Murders are a great example because I, I noticed that they started outfielding to b- villages around them, which... I mean, clearly the entire country, if there were as many murders as there are in British TV, Britain would be denuded. It, there would be That's no right. And, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's become a regional problem. <laughs> Everyone's dying exactly. right across the county. Exactly. <laughs> it's interesting when you say this because I'm thinking about one of my favourite TV shows. It started out with one of my favourite movies and became one of my favourite mm-hmm. TV shows, Fargo. Oh, right. And I, and I think part, yes. of the, part of the thing about Fargo is that they are just regular people being pushed to the brink mm-hmm. a lot of the time, not all of them. But the fact that it is in a place where everyone knows everyone kind of really raises a menace, doesn't it? That it's not anonymous people being taken. It's suddenly the butcher is found half-stuffed yes. in the mincer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you respond to that idea that killing off people in a small place is, is a bad idea or is well, it's certainly, look, it's problematic, and you've probably noticed with the TV series, so the movie Fargo was mm. able to manage all that very well because it had a limited time span. Our television series run for years. Yeah. So you notice with, with, with Fargo that you've got, they've, they've switched the main characters, haven't they? The cops are switched. So you get different points of view because you can't afford to have one person dealing with they're intertwined, but they're not the same kind of... Well, they're over different times because the, the cop in one is the father. Exactly, exactly. So you've also you've also crossed time spans. So where what, what would have been a problem for the father, the son who comes on the force has a different problem to solve. And now you've, you're also outsourcing to bigger towns and other towns, and you've got this kind of new Americana thing coming in as well. So oh, I Kansas. think I didn't even know that I didn't even know that Kansas had a mafia until I watched Fargo. Yes, Kansas City. So you're bringing in all these different and new elements, and they would have had different, you know, crime. The nature of crime changes over time as well, and what becomes a problem. So you couldn't make a crime series in America now without somehow addressing the opioid crisis, for example where you maybe wouldn't have had to do that in the 70s. So, yes, you can, but Fargo's been very clever about it in terms of outsourcing it to different characters and looking over different times. When you mentioned the opioid thing, we're talking now we're talking about things like Breaking Bad, but then, then you're taking a different approach to an old problem going, let's blur the lines about whether what this guy's doing is good or bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the past, it was pretty clear cut. If you had a hard-boiled detective, it was like good guys, mm-hmm. bad guys, cops and robbers, murderers and detectives, right? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think, one of the ways that crime fiction is, we're not playing catch-up, but what changing is because, you know, there's been this huge response now where uh, crime and YA and, and every other kind of book or story, we're now competing with these massively powerful engines, story engines that come into our homes every day with thousands of different stories. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very used to getting stories very quickly and, and also the long-form TV thing has made it much more difficult to write a book because people 
people are much more canny now about story twists and turns than they ever were before because they're just they're just ingesting huge amounts of story so one of uh, my my son went to um he went to a selector school here in sydney right and all the boys used to say to him are oh, you doing arts what are you going to do with arts you know because they were all on the engineering doctor track and his response was well what do you do when you go go home and they go i play i play call of duty and he goes who do you think makes call of duty who does the rendering who does the voicing Story who film. does the music you know, stories are absolutely everywhere and their engines are so much, and let's just say between you and me, we're not given enough credit. <laughs> oh, look. Uh, uh, well, filling in people's lives. Come I on. Made, I made the point on the podcast way back, on the main Westwards podcast way back when we first went into lockdown that, you know, they, they were bringing in support for for businesses and so forth, but yes. they'd been very clear that the, the arts weren't getting a hand mm-hmm. yet if at mm. all. And the point was made by me, which was re- basically repeating a point someone else has made, that what are we doing in lockdown? We're watching Netflix. Exactly. Who writes Netflix? It's, exactly. it's writers. It's not it's writers. Yeah. And who enacts it? Actors. And people just take it, they do, they absolutely take it uh, for, for granted that, um, that this is vital and important stuff and it's been going on for centuries. Now, it's just something that I think is probably partly what the human brain needs is we, we love stories and we, we also that they're, they're not a, a teaching tool. Like, you know, you take a rule to someone's listen to this. I've got something to tell you. They managed to bring people in and you can talk about all sorts of different things, but yes, what we're we doing, we're watching Netflix. We're reading, we're reading books. Are we also doing exercise and yoga and everything else and all that sort of stuff? But, um, you speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your process when you write a story, a crime novel, because you mentioned that you looked at a beautiful place, the Braided River, and Mm. and you you went, oh, imagine if there was a body in there. And then a Mm. bit later you went, imagine if that body was a policeman. How do you, what forces do you bring to bear on that idea to create something that will create suspense, suspense, tension, raise, raise questions in the reader's mind, basically tick all those boxes that make something a crime story? Okay, you know that expression, if you're a plotter or a pantser, you either plot or you just go... Yeah, we'll clarify for listeners. Yeah, so you... Sorry, you were doing... No, yeah, no, you go ahead and clarify. Plotters are people who prepare their story before they start writing and then pantsers are people who fly by the seat of their pants. Yeah. Yeah, and just see see what happens. Which which are you. I'm that that one, but it's probably hard to be a crime fiction writer doing that, isn't it? You know, here's the thing is I... After reading so much crime, I definitely had a, a, an idea of structure in my mind, not from mm. plotting, but from reading books and going, oh, I see. Oh, so that happened. Oh, that's a surprise. So I think part of any, per, if you want to write genre, part of your education must be reading that genre. Right. Dive into it, read it, see how, and you're not even doing it for structure. You're just doing it for story. Like, oh, I really like that story. Why did I like that story? So, my apprenticeship wasn't writing small crime stories or thinking about how crime works. It was just reading a whole lot of crime books. Mm. And I read my first uh, Walter Mosley book, Devil in the Blue Dress. And Mm. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, he's 
he, all these characters, it was in LA, it was a black detective, it was a mixed race family, it was a, a Hispanic guy who was married to a black, it was just, it blew my mind because I thought, of course, it's possible to populate your this genre with any kind of uh, people and it kind of gave me confidence that I could write a South African crime novel, you know, because I'd read this and I thought, oh, no, you don't actually have to, you don't have to be Agatha Christie. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have to be an English manor house and he doesn't have to. And I even think that Australian crime, it just shows a kind of um, an evolution of the genre now where it's, it's very, you can actually be so space and time and space and town specific and crime, crime readers will go to that and they will read that. But, but look, I don't, I don't plot. I just, if, if you, there's, a, if you're mad about any kind of a genre, just read it a lot and then some people will plot it. Um, and as for the suspense, I mean, it's built in. Come on. <laughs> but if, you, if, you say, if you say you're not plotting, at some point you have to revisit structure, though. I mean, if you're, if you're just writing and seeing where it leads and you go, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that, then you're presumably going to have to go back and do a second draft. And to any yes. young people listening in, that might sound like a horrible idea, but clearly that's really important to what you do, isn't it? I'm not sure there's anyone I know that's had a first draft published. Certainly first not, draft certainly are, not in this genre. No, no, not in this genre at, at all. Hmm. I mean, you can, you can write something in a, in a kind of a passion and it will all turn out for you, but most people do go and, and revisit uh, things and you, re, you rework things absolutely. In, in A Beautiful Place to Die, which is my first crime book, it got to the point where I was pretty sure I knew... Who, this is what I love about it. I actually wasn't 100% sure who killed the policeman in the river. I had, I didn't know. Mm. And as I was writing, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think I know Maybe exactly who it is. <laughs> and I got to the point where I, I was like, okay, he's, on the, he's, he's in the hills and my detective Emmanuel finds him. And then he pretty much just tells my character I didn't do it. I thought, oh my God, I believe him. He didn't do it at all. And then, but then I realized that my mind backwardly had, in the back of my mind had already been working on something else it was a vague idea that was floating around. The moment he said, I didn't do it. I thought, no, no, of course you didn't because, and then my mind came up Look, it's imagination. Everyone's, everyone's got it. How do you access it? Um, so I don't plot, but, my books work out because I read so much crime and I love crime and I watch crime that I get to a point where even when I'm writing, I'll go, this scene doesn't belong because it's not moving the action forward at all. And often I'm writing a scene so I can get to know a character better and then that scene has to get thrown out. Um, so everyone's got a different process. Everyone absolutely does it. Uh, they, they do it differently. Um, I just, I use, I, I just, the story leads me. I just I follow the story. There's a couple of there's a couple of cliches, a couple of tropes that find their way into crime, and I say this as someone who isn't terribly <laughs> well versed in crime, but okay. you know, the, the hard boiled detective is sure. usually you know you can find him in a bar at one in the morning, yes, into his whiskey about how his wife left him. Sure. sure. If, if a young person listening to this is wanting to write crime, how do they? How do they avoid those cliches in in the characters they choose in the genre they choose? You know, your, your Western 
your Western detective or your hardball detective? How do you avoid those cliches? How do you make that fresh? And how do you find a, a suitable weakness? Because your character is going to need a weakness as well. It can't just be, he can't just be brilliant or she can't just be brilliant. Um, how do you come up with something like that, that that hasn't been done a million times? Well, the one thing about genre is sometimes, not a lot of the time, but much of the time, the readers are, are quite happy with a sense of familiarity. Right. Right, because that's what makes the genre. The familiarity is not a bad thing. But so what Prime Witness did, this is many, many years back, is she took um, LaPlante, the the writer, took the hard-boiled male detective and switched it to a female. Brilliant, right? She weren't, you never seen, I'd never seen that before. And she gives zero cares about what what her male colleagues think she was incredible so she so you there's all these ways you can play around with genre and and actually keep some of those tropes in 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 place because they're not necessarily bad there's a reason why those things keep turning up is because people people like that but uh, i personally have got to a point so if i'm reading something and someone's crying into their whiskey i'm more likely to go and i'm i just don't need that anymore i don't i've seen it too many times but but the genre tends to change with the time and the place and, and what you tend to, to write. So if you read something and you, if you're reading through the genre and you're trying to get a, an understanding of how it works, so you read five or six crime books and you'll ask, you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't I like that crime book? And you'll find what you like and don't like. And if they're tropes you like, you know, you're an individual. Every writer's an individual. So you, what, you, what, you, what you must not do is simply copy what you've read. You, you give it your spin. You're an individual. Think about things in and of yourself or your life that might make that more interesting or different. I suppose that, that, that weakness in the character that, that that trope might be, I guess that actually helps you in the suspense you build because, you know, the the hard-boiled detective who is grieving about his wife, for, for example, mm-hmm. may have a huge blind spot around some yeah. something to do with his wife. And so you as a reader need to be able to see that and go, dude, you got to stop thinking about this. you got to look at it this way. You, you, you're blinded by this. Yeah, so it, it, can, it definitely can work, work on that level. It also works on another level of what Americans would call relatability. All right, so one, one problem I have with Sherlock Holmes is I, I, I wish that in the more genre, the, the more forward-facing modern version of it, I wish they would hit the whole opium smoking thing a bit harder because he's a bit of a drug addict. Dude's a drug addict, okay? But you never bloody see that. He's just brilliant, brilliant. I, I've got no time for him because I don't believe that people are born with brilliance, you know, and they're just brilliant. Uh, see, so I could never write that because my reaction to those things where people love them was to go no i would much rather have a character that i can work with that has something that i feel that i can relate to you know so that that flaw in the character just makes them you know people want to be able to go and maybe see themselves a little bit in it but you but you can't actually fall back on those old tropes anymore you can't fall back on he just drinks really heavily and also uh, the streaming services are helping break that up a little bit more too. And you, you're seeing more and more of the bad guy or the bad woman, but 
but they're human too. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> the, whole, right? the whole anti, the whole anti-hero um, you know, house of cards. Absolutely. I mean, one of my one of my favourite crime series on television was Monk, which was you know, right. Tony, yeah, that was Tony Shalhoub, and it's sort of this is an example I use when I talk to students about this sort of thing because the thing that make the internal conflict between his desire to solve the crime and his obsessive compulsive. Yes. behaviours and his inability to kind of, you know, he's, he's a clean freak and yet he's got to fish bodies out of dumpsters. We often, when we divide stories into either plot-driven or character-driven stories, mm-hmm. we, we can tend to go, let's lump all the all the crime and, and um, suspense and and detective and all that stuff. We can dump, dump all that very much in the in, in thrillers. We can dump all that in the plot-driven basket. But really what it feels like you're saying is that there's as much room for the character-driven stuff in there as, as there is with the plot. In not only is it a broad church, you can go from high literary crime to what used to be called penny dreadfuls, which is, you know, just really just kind of bottom of the level, but, but thrilling and exciting, and then you've got really, really kind of tony intellectual stuff that's going on. It's, it's huge. You'll find, you'll find everything in, in, in that genre addressing all sorts of different things in different ways so when people i mean i've we talked about this a little earlier but um when you go to a writing festival there are people who do literary stuff who who look down on crime writers a little bit but i know that they're incredibly fine crime writers who are doing amazing stuff but they're doing it in a way that is entertaining (laughs) <laughs> and then that people really like so it is it's a broad thing of you know you and often crime is both those things it's both character and plot driven that is why it has lasted so long that is why it is a perennial favorite draw you know genre that people go to they get, they're about to go on holiday not unusual people will pick up a crime read on the way and it's not just because it's entertaining so the very best crime writers absolutely do they do both they're amazing. But all the crime writers I've met, with one exception who I shan't name, have been really lovely people. What attracts, what attracts you really nice people to, to these horrible, horrible stories? Well, I think our niceness isn't in that. It's Our niceness probably comes from the fact that we understand that we're genre writers and we don't, we don't feel like we're particularly special. And we also secret. Most crime writers absolutely love their jobs. Right. <laughs> we just love it. We love being in that genre and we're kind of, we, it's like YA writers, you make this kind of gang of people. Everyone's got different areas. Some are madly successful. Some have only got one book, but somehow it's, there's a kind of a camaraderie with crime writers that plus happens. You, plus you sell copies. <laughs> Which is, and the, that's, the, that's the thing I've often pointed out to people when they say, oh, you're a children's writer, and then they... That make that look as if you know, you're just a children's writer, and that's when I invite them to go and look at the list of the leading lending rights earners absolutely. in this country, and, and they're all children's writers, with the, exception, with the exception of Bryce Courtney, who isn't with us anymore. Look, I think we're going to have to wrap it up because okay. our time has flown by, oh, but yeah, it's been yeah. such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, do you have a you have a website, don't you? Yes, I do, and it is just my name, marlanun.com. Yeah, and that, that website is mostly uh, centred around my When the Ground is Hard, which is my YA novel, which, interesting enough, I wrote and then I finished it and I knew I 
thought there's something missing from the book and I thought this is because I'm a crime writer and then I got back and there's an incident in the book which is not full crime but certainly made me feel like ah oh, that's better. Okay, that's in, I was actually thinking about that you read my mind because as you were talking yep. about I suddenly thought hang on there's that thing in that book that makes it a crime book. Yeah. I just not help herself and you've just answered that question. I can't I literally cannot help myself. Marla, thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. We'll talk oh, about. look, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Of course.